Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Chris Geis. The purpose of my podcast is to help grow the sport of motorcycling by helping riders of all levels, whether they are new to motorcycling or not, increase their knowledge and skills so that they are better, safer riders and are getting everything they want out of motorcycling, whether it's on the street, on the track, or maybe even as a fan or participant in some form of racing. This is episode 27, titled 60s and 70s Motorcycle Racer Tony Sheriff. In this episode, I have a good old chinwag with Tony Sheriff, who did all types of motorcycle racing in the 1960s and 70s in New Zealand and Australia. Tony shares a lot of stories related to racing both on and off the track, and we touch a little bit on how motorcycle technology has changed over the years, but much of what we discuss highlights the fact that while the motorcycles and the equipment have evolved over the years, the true spirit, adventure, and excitement of motorcycles and motorcycle racing has definitely stayed the same or maybe like a fine wine, has gotten even better with age. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, August 21st, 2019, and is being published on Wednesday, October 2nd, 2019. I hope you enjoy it. So, you want to ride a motorcycle? Well, you've come to the right place, because this is the So You Want to Ride a Motorcycle Podcast. I know it's been a couple of weeks since I released the last episode, and I think I'm finally at the point where I can get back to a regular weekly schedule. I have two backlogged episodes that I'll be getting out soon, one with Bond Body Armor and the other with Dave Moss from Dave Moss Tuning. As any podcaster will tell you, it takes quite a bit of time to put a podcast episode together. It's an hour or two to prepare ahead of time for the interview, then about two to three hours to do the setup and record the actual episode, then time to listen to the raw audio for things that need to be edited, and then another couple hours to put everything together and get it published on the various podcast platforms. I'm working towards setting up my recording tools and software so I can do more of a record and then publish right away type model without much post-production work, but that's going to take a little time to get set up. So needless to say, as things stand, it can be hard to balance podcast production time with everything that else is going on. I, of course, want to produce the best quality podcast I can, so do me a favor and let me know what you think of the overall quality of the shows that I put out lately so I know what areas to focus on the most and which areas I may not need to put as much attention on. But all that aside, fortunately, I've been able to enjoy quite a bit of motorcycle racing live at the track recently. This is a fairly long interview tonight, so I won't go into too much details, but I'll give you a little idea of what I've been up to recently. So two weekends ago, I flew down to Birmingham, Alabama to see the final round of Moto America at the Barber Motorsports Park. Also, this past Saturday, Gene and I were able to see the final race in the American Flat Track Series at the Meadowlands Racetrack in New Jersey. So let me see if I can just kind of share some things just off the top of my head, just, you know, looking, looking back at the past racing season, uh, or in particular, like these last two races that I were at. So one, one thing that was really interesting was... Um, you know, I mean, I guess I'm a fan of all the different riders. I mean, you know, every, every rider has their, their plus points of things that they're good at. And it's just fun to see all the races racing. But, you know, when it comes to Moto America, I've gotten to be a bit of a Cameron Bobier fan. 
you know, and and I guess it's easy to be a fan of someone who's you know very successful at anything, you know, in any kind of sport or whatever, uh, you know. And he's won the Moto America Superbike Championship for quite a few years in a row. I think it's going back three years. I'm not totally sure. Uh, and and maybe there was a year in between. He didn't win. It was like you know, he won once or twice, and then there was a year he didn't, and then he won again. But anyway, so you know, I was following him with interest this season. And it was interesting because I guess it was kind of towards the middle of the season that uh, Tony Elias really seemed to be coming on strong on his Suzuki. And so I was just kind of watching things. And, you know, Tony was starting to win races and he was beating Cameron here and there. And Cameron was getting behind the points. In fact, I think he was behind the points for quite some time. And so I started to wonder, like, okay, is Cameron going to be able to pull it off? And so it was just interesting to be able to actually be at these last two races. So, you know, I was at the round number nine down in New Jersey at New Jersey Motorsports Park. And then more recently, the final round down at Barber Motorsports Park. And it was just really cool to see the action, you know, going on between the two. Um, If I recall, the Suzukis were having a little trouble in New Jersey, although not as much as they were in Alabama um, at at Barber. And at any rate, the the point being that that Cameron squeaked it out, you know, kind of come come the end of the the season so the last two races um i believe he won both of them i don't i don't have the results in front of me right now and like i said i'm just kind of doing this off the cuff but the thing that stood out is that it was looking kind of kind of bleak there for a while a couple rounds ago and then cameron just kept his head down you know kept his head in the game Uh, like i said the suzuki seemed to be having a little bit of trouble for whatever reason uh, at barber and cameron pulled it off so he is again the superbike champion for motor america this year so that was really cool um and then uh, it was really cool just following kyle wyman and again i I don't have all the stats in front of me and stuff i just kind of want to just go over this a little bit but you know i did interview him back i think it was episode 25 and uh back i think when i i'm trying to think now back then when i interviewed him i think he was like ninth tenth in the championship or something like that um you know it's it's a new bike for him this year you know he's got the Ducati Panigale V4R, which basically he, not basically, he bought two bikes off the showroom floor, but uh, he's been spending a lot of time making mods and changes of various types that we talked about a little bit on that episode. But it's been really cool to watch him race and to see him, you know, at, at times being up like in third place, you know, in, in, in the superbike race. And then he's had some decent finishes, I think fourth, fifth, sixth position, something like that. So he's definitely getting his program together. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what, what he does next year. Um, I'm sure he'll continue to work on developing the bikes, you know, over the winter and be doing some testing and stuff. So that will be really cool. So that's kind of a standout. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Barber facility is awesome. If you've never been there, definitely check it out. If for no other reason, just go down there for the uh, the, the museum. This, you know, they have a museum of automobiles and motorcycles. Just an amazing, amazing collection. I mean, you, you could spend a whole weekend and you still probably wouldn't see everything. So, you know, definitely check that out. I'll, I'll put a link in the episode notes. Um, yeah, so Moto America. So definitely looking forward to the 2020 season. Um you know, it's it's kind of like I started following Moto America because you know started doing it for on the Throttle podcast, and I've just really uh, really started to just enjoy the series. The more and more I learned about it, and the teams, and the bikes, and the racers, and whatever, the more I've really really gotten into it. So it's been really cool. You know, last year. Gene and I saw the race in New Jersey, and then I got to see two races, actually three races this year, because I saw them race with uh, MotoGP in uh, Coda, uh, Circuit of the Americas, down in Austin, Texas. So I actually saw three races this year. 
I don't know if I'll be able to swing it, but I definitely would like to see even more races next year. I mean, ideally, I'd love to go and see every race. I don't think that's very practical, either time or budget-wise, but uh, definitely we'll see what, what I can do. And definitely would like like to go see some of the tracks you know that I haven't seen them race at. So that'll be really cool. And then uh, standouts for American Flat Track. So this is the first time that, that I've seen American Flat Track live. It's been a little tough following flat track this season just for time reasons you know just it's been enough just keeping up on Moto america and everything that's going on there but it was really cool to see a race live um the meadowlands it's meadowlands mile so it's a mile long racetrack it's actually the facility where they race horses at the meadowlands uh they were on the the outer oval which is you know dirt basically groom you know groomed dirt so that was really cool just to see that you know again just being at the track and just getting to see the bikes up close um american flat track is quite a bit like moto america where you have pretty open paddock access so after the race we didn't bother beforehand but probably we could have had access beforehand but after the race was over we walked through the paddock as the teams were packing up and everything and it was cool just to be able to walk up to the bikes and you know talk to the racers and the teams and whatever um i know uh, gina got a autograph from Shana Texter, Texter, I think is her name. Um, she races in the singles, I believe. But uh, anyway, so it was really cool just, just you know, just to experience it, to, to to hear it in person and see the bikes and smell the race fuel and all that kind of stuff. And it was neat being able to get right up, you know, against the track. Unfortunately, the view isn't perfect because in the case of the Meadowlands, they've got a chain link fence that goes up fairly about eye level, a little over eye level. So you're kind of looking through a chain link fence. So that's not ideal. But, uh, you know, we were basically seated pretty close to the start finish line. And so I just went walked down from the grandstand. We had some nice seats high up. And that's an interesting thing, too. It's, it is a mile track. It's a very big track. So you can see the entire track from the grandstand. But honestly, like the back straightaway is so far away. You know, the, the bikes look very small. So unless you have binoculars or something, it's a little bit tough to see what's going on. Um, but they do have like one of those jumbotron TVs, you know, uh, across from the main straightaway, so you can pretty much see that from any of the grandstand seats. So that was cool to be able to just keep up on things. And actually, I was using the the live timing app, and also on they have it on the website. Um, I think it's Fans Choice TV has the live timing, so that was cool. You can kind of follow it that way, and then you see the bikes on the track. But anyway, the point I was getting to is really cool to walk right up to the track, you know, whereas maybe. I don't know, three feet away, something like that. Not not too much of a buffer. And uh, when those bikes go by, it's it's amazing just to hear the sound and, and, and feel the wind. I mean, I don't know exactly, but they're probably on the straightaway by the time they're at the end, they're probably hitting 130, 140 miles an hour on dirt, which is pretty wild. And, and, and they obviously kick up the dust and whatnot. So, you know, I was, I was, shooting video kind of looking down the straightaway towards where they were coming at me and i stopped that after a little while because i was just getting pelted with like little pebbles and stuff and you know when 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 a string of bikes would go by you get this big dust cloud in your face or whatever which is kind of cool you know just to feel and experience that uh, so it, it definitely was a little better looking behind as they were going away <laughs> so you didn't didn't have all that stuff hitting you in the face but anyway really really Great experience overall. Um, definitely encourage anyone who's you know either into racing, check it out, or even if you're not, you know, check it out. Kind of interesting. I mean, um, in terms of the crowd, I mean, you know, people are cool. All people are cool, but um, just the feel of it, like it's it's kind of interesting, right? Because to me, I was kind of thinking about it. It's like so. You know, like MotoGP racing kind of, to me, has the feel of like Formula One car racing, and then Moto America, I'd say. 
you know, probably is similar to like IndyCar kind of racing. And then um, American Flat Track definitely has more the feel of, of NASCAR, like more of that, um, I don't know how to put it, like that, I, I don't know, just that grassroots, homegrown kind of feeling. It's like everybody's just out having a good time and partying and there's great music and, you know, stuff going on. And, and everybody's like, like, like really into it, really enjoying themselves. You know, people just you know dancing and all kinds of stuff so it, it just was kind of really cool to see so uh definitely uh you know if you haven't checked it out you know check out american flat track motor america and uh i don't think you'll be disappointed okay so with all of that said uh, i have to say so i'm really looking forward to the 2020 season i will definitely follow as much of american flat track as i can uh but definitely i'll be following motor america and uh, another reason it's been tough getting out this episode just time-wise is one of the things that's been kind of cool is as a podcaster, I've been able to get a media pass. Actually, I had a media pass. I didn't use it for the whole year, but it was good for the whole year for Moto America. So that pretty much you know, gives me access to you know, all, everything, basically, all parts of the track, you know, either for taking pictures or walking in the pits and, you know, talking to people, talking to racers, teams and whatever. So that's been really cool. So I spent quite a bit of time shooting photos. Um, and, and what's nice about that, too, is obviously you have to be on the correct side of the safety barrier. But basically, you know, you have your photo credentials and you have to put on a vest so they know that you're, you know, you're an official photographer and so that the track workers know that you're okay to be there. But basically you can walk out, you know, past the, the main fence that, you know, stops the spectators and stuff from going up to the track and you can just go right up to the track barrier. So, uh, you know, in some cases you're five, six feet away. In some cases it's more than that, but I was able to get some really, really good photos. So for anyone who's interested, uh, I'm going to, make my photos available. So if, if you, if you, you know, like racing, you'd like to see some of the racing photos I shot from Motor America. I, I apparently have a bunch from Barber Motorsports Park. I'm going to try to get them together for uh, New Jersey Motorsports Park as well. But uh, just shoot me an email. Just let me know that you're interested and I will send you the link for the photos. Um, they do have my watermark on them just because I'm kind of trying to also use this as a way to promote my photography and, you know, just kind of get my name out there. And who knows, maybe next season, maybe I'll, I'll take the photography part a little more seriously and, you know, maybe even use it as a, as a sideline for income or something like that. But anyway, so if you're interested in that, definitely let me know. Um, yeah, and you could use the photos for you know, whatever you want to use them for, you know, for a desktop on your computer or a screensaver, or you want to just have them on your phone or you want to share them around or whatever. Def, uh, definitely, I'd appreciate, you know, any, any help you can give me to help get my uh, photography out there as well. So that'd be really cool. And then uh, finally, I just wanted to give a couple shout outs. So one, so I did at Barber have an opportunity to meet Jordan Long, who uh, I've been Facebook friends with for a while and just basically found him just because of our mutual love for, for motorcycles and motorcycle racing. He's actually been motorcycle racer for many, many, many years. I think he said going on 30 years. He races uh, in Wira. So, you know, kind of club level racing. I do not believe he's ever done any pro racing or maybe a little semi-pro or something like that, but really cool guy. And, uh, yeah, he, he really knows the ins and outs of motorcycle racing. He knows a lot of the people, you know, in, in the Moto America crowd, you know, he knows a lot of races in the paddock. And in fact, um, down at Barber, he was helping out Max Flinders, who's, you know, got a bit of a, a small team. And so he was trying to help him out in his superbike effort. So anyway, so um, he's been doing a lot of interviews with people in Moto America and various racers and team members and et cetera. So he's uh, 
got like a bunch of interviews, but he's looking to get his podcast off the ground. So I've been trying to help him out with that. And I think hopefully he'll be close to releasing his first episode probably in the next couple of weeks. Although he's got interviews and contact going back a couple months. So I'm looking forward to him uh, getting that stuff out. So, uh, yeah, and uh, definitely going to work out getting him on the show. Probably what we'll do is I'll do an interview with him. And then kind of in conjunction with that, we'll, we'll announce his podcast getting off the ground. So, uh, yep. So like I said, that'll be really cool. Looking forward to that. And then uh, also just a quick shout out. So one to David Metallo, who uh, is a listener of uh, Throttled, so that's how I know him, and actually got a chance to meet him. He lives down in the Birmingham area, down near the track. And uh, Rodney Green, who is another uh, listener of the Throttle podcast, so that was really cool. Uh, Rodney has his own motorcycle shop. He does a lot of repair work and things, and actually has is, is probably been very, very busy. I lost track. I don't know if the Barber Vintage Festival is this coming weekend or the weekend following. I think it's this coming weekend, but I know he's had a lot of work from people that wanted uh, wanted his help in getting their motorcycles set up for the Vintage Festival. So it was really cool to, to hang out with him and see him again. I, I actually met him, I think it was two years ago, for Motorcycle Podcasters Challenge when we were down there at Barber. Uh, but uh, he kind of took me around the track a little bit at Barber and showed me some of his favorite viewing points, so that was really cool. So David and Rodney, it was awesome seeing you guys down there, and hope we get a chance to do it again soon. And one of the things that I mentioned before that's really cool is the degree of access you have at Moto America to the paddock and to the racers and whatnot. Um, so, for example, it, it was kind of cool. I was just walking down past the garages and stuff and i saw uh cooper mcdonald who's a twins cup racer go by on his scooter so we just kind of you know whatever recognized each other so he you know he stopped and uh, he was on his way to i don't know i think he was prepping for qualifying later that day or whatever so we didn't have a, a lot of time to speak but we got to say hello to him which which was really really cool and uh although i didn't meet up with him later in the weekend although i had hoped to I uh, did get a chance to see his bike uh, down on the, the, the track, you know, down in the uh, the pit lane area. I uh, got to see the, the my uh, podcast sticker on the, the tail section of, of his bike, which is really, really cool. He actually, um, as part of uh, some people had gotten together to help sponsor him when he was heading for, I think it was Pittsburgh. Um, so I was one of the people that helped sponsor him for that. And so it was really cool. He had some nice t-shirts made up that had all the sponsor logos on the back. It says Cooper McDonald on the front of the shirt. So uh, that, that's a really cool souvenir that I have from the 2019 season. And then uh, he also put, you know, sponsor stickers on his bike. So he had a, a really nice size, uh, rendition of my podcast sticker made up that that he put on the back of his motorcycle so that was really cool so cooper i appreciate that and uh yeah he was doing did really well this season so i'm looking forward to uh seeing him racing motor america in 2020 it was also cool to get a chance to talk a little bit with kyle wyman and Braden ort you know who've both been on the podcast but it was cool just to see them down there by the track and just get a chance to you know just chat with them about things going on i actually had seen them during the it's like the fan walk you know that the fans can you know walk the pit and see the motorcycles and talk to the racers and get autographs and all that kind of stuff so that was really cool seeing them in person uh and then uh yeah so chris bays so uh yeah shout out to chris so got to got to see him which was really cool he's uh he is on the mend um i'm trying to think now so i'm pretty sure yeah that the the first episode he was on um we talked about his crash um you know unfortunately there were some repercussions from that that kind of put an end to his racing season um but totally makes sense you know he decided being that um 
you know, he, he wasn't like in points contention for the championship or anything. And there was only a couple of races left to the year. He kind of opted to just get his, uh, get his elbow taken care of when, when he had that, uh, crash on the motorcycle in, I think it was Sonoma raceway. Um, he ended up, uh, I guess not exactly sure it was ligament or tendon damage or, or muscle damage, something in, in the elbow. So he had to have that taken care of actually involved a skin craft, which they had to do before they could uh, do the repair on the joint. And then, uh, he had that surgery recently. He had posted actually a picture on social media on Instagram. So look like the recovery is going well. So it's really cool that, uh, you know, he's had that surgery done and out of the way and, uh, he'll have a chance to rest up and rehabilitate over the winter. And, um, as far as I know, he's going to be back at it in 2020. So, uh, Chris, you know, wish you well with that. Definitely looking forward to seeing you race next season and, uh, hooking up with you at the track. So, yeah. So I will see all of you guys next year, 2020 from Moto America. All right. All right. So now that you're caught up in everything I've been up to lately, let's get on with tonight's interview. Hope you enjoy it. My special guest tonight is someone who I've gotten to know through our friendship on Facebook. He often shares photos and posts about motorcycles and motorcycle racing in my Experienced Riders Facebook group, and I've always been intrigued by the motorcycle racing photos he has shared that feature him on the motorcycle. So since I've recently interviewed several contemporary motorcycle racers, I figured it was about time to invite him on the show and learn about his own racing experiences and get his unique perspective on motorcycle racing. Tony Sheriff was born and raised in New Zealand, raced motorcycles in New Zealand and Australia during the late 60s and early 70s, and now calls St. Petersburg, Florida home. So welcome, Tony. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Like I said, as we were chatting before I started recording, I I guess we'll just kind of start with the big question of like, what kind of racing did you do? Well, I started out with uh, racing sidecars, passengering racing sidecars, and um, I went on. I've done pretty much every type of uh, motorcycle racing except speedway and um, drag racing. I think I've oh, wow. done at some point. I've done everything else just once, maybe twice. No, I've done, a, done motocross. I've done sprints. I've done sidecar racing. I've raced production racing in New Zealand and Australia, and I've done I've done English trials. I've done all kinds of stuff. So, wow. Yeah. So, um, if I'm not mistaken, so the the quote-unquote passenger in sidecar racing is called the monkey is that right uh it, it was not that was not a term they used in new zealand at the time it's that, that's an american term i think but okay uh, okay gotcha that's and that, yeah, that's that, one of the interesting things yeah that's descriptive of it though i guess i guess because the idea is is you have to in, in in order to balance the weight of the of the sidecar rig you have to be able to hang off I guess that's the idea is that the, the, the passenger is back and forth on the motorcycle. And I, I don't know. I guess in, in the U.S. they think that looks like a monkey or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it, it looks like it's a, it's a you know, silly thing to be doing. But, I mean, you've got, you've got your, your own life in your hands. And you've also got the life of a passenger in your hands if you don't do it right. Sure. So there's, a lot, there's a lot to learn. You've got to be really fit and agile. I mean, you're hanging out the side by one knee on the chair and, two hands on the grips and your butt dragging on the ground, you know, on the, on the left-hand corner. In the right-hand corner, you're over top of the back wheel. So, you know, 100 miles an hour, you're jumping back and forth and, you know, and hanging on and on straight. So, but you're lying down flat with your feet poking out the back and hopefully they're not bouncing on the ground. 
Right. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So one, like one of the things I've noticed and a couple, about a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago, I went to the vintage motorcycle racing in uh, New Jersey Motorsports Park uh, for the Armour American Historic Race, American Historic Racing Motorcycle Association, if I got that right. Um, but what's interesting is some rigs were passenger on the left and some were passenger on the right. Is, And I'm guessing that's done depending on the type of track and i guess my question to you like in, when you were racing like in on, on in a given race was it every everyone was passenger on the same side or was it kind of a choice based on usually it was it was all on the left hand side typically there'd be there'd be someone who always wanted to be different yeah but, it, uh, but typically they were always on the left hand side okay gotcha yeah and then so how did that come about that you you know you became a passenger on a sidecar like how, did, how does that happen well, I was, um, gosh, early 20s, and we, as usual, we were sitting around drinking beer one night, and um, my buddy decided he wanted to go sidecar racing. I said, oh, great, I'll be a passenger. <laughs> okay, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> <Half drunk. laughs> the first race meeting in New Zealand, the main racing season starts the day after Christmas, and okay. it runs for about six or eight weeks, and it's, it's, it's two of the, the circus travels all around the country going to all the different meets and things. And, um, right. I said, "What are we using for the bike?" He said, "I'll take the motor out of the out of the gold star, and we'll use that." And he had a spare frame there, so we. And um, about the same time, my rider, my buddy, got himself a new girlfriend, and uh, we, he didn't he didn't surface for about two and a half weeks after that. We were a week mm-hmm. away from getting off to the first race meeting. We hadn't started building this thing, and uh, so we. We dived into this thing and we built the thing and we got it put together. And they have, you understand, leading link forks, right? Mm-hmm. They, and so we had to, we built the, they all the sidecars in those days. I think even still they had leading link forks on them. And um, we got this thing all going. We started, fired it up in his backyard and we took it out in the street. And the, it just, the front wheel just went bang, 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 bang. It wouldn't go in a straight line no matter what we did with it. As we measured it all up again, we found we had the wheel about an inch, inch and a half too far forward in the forks. Okay. We were supposed to be loading the thing on the trailer in half an hour to go 300 miles to the first meeting. So the only – he didn't know what to do. I said, well, let's get the gas torch. We heated the, heated the forks red hot in the back. So we literally drove the bike into the side of the house and pushed the wheel back. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, we got, <laughs> we got, we got the wheel – to a point where with the um, we got it to handle with the with the um, what do you call it crank down really tight so it um, it and it, it got to the point where we could ride the thing right and, uh, we that, that was the first meeting and it was it was it was so underpowered it was terrible it, we couldn't it was not really a race bike that we never fixed the handling until one day. In New Zealand, there's a whole bunch of round-the-houses races. There's not a lot of – back in those days, there wasn't a lot of race courses. Okay. So they'd mark out a track around the houses. And one one meeting about a year later, we he, he put he put the bike over a traffic aisle, hit the traffic aisle, and bounced and threw us all out across the road. And we picked it up. And that was the last bump of the forks needed to make it handle properly. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was even better after that? It was, it was great after that. <laughs> Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's, that's great. 
That's funny. A bunch of cowboys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but whatever, whatever it took, you got it done, right? And it, we got it, was, it done. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we had a lot of fun though. We had, but we rode that thing for a couple of years. We went out. We had we used to have out the back of town. We used to have um, sprints. It was like a kilometer sprint, and it was like a big old S bend, and uh, we had all kinds of bikes and stuff out there. And he was riding, and he he got as fast as he could go on the thing, and um, he wanted to ride his other bike through the sprint. He said, if you want to take the outfit for a ride through, go ahead. So I took it. I got another guy who was an experienced passenger. I put him in the chair and away I went. I was about a second away from his time. I'd never ridden this thing before. Wow. So I got right up there and I thought, man, I never said a word about it. I said, John, come on, let's do another run. <laughs> we got in there. <laughs> we went out the second time and beat his time. He never let me ride it again after that. <laughs> I guess I guess you had the talent for it. I guess no, so. I, that. I didn't yeah. know how to shut the throttle down or something. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, that could be it too. So, um, so in a sidecar rig, and I'm guessing, I, I don't. Do, do you follow racing at all? Like currently, do you watch anything like Isle of Man or? Yeah, I just clips on fun um, YouTube. I don't watch whole races or anything like that. Yeah, okay. I was just curious, like from from what you know, you know, has the design of sidecar rigs has it stayed? More, you know, obviously technology improves and all that, but is the design more or less the same? You know, in in terms of driver seat like position and whatever, then versus now. Yeah, but the, there's there's two different classes now. There's the the six hundred class and there's the open class, which I think is a thousand cc's. Um, they're all fully fared now. They've got fairings that cover the whole bike. And they're all, in the old days, they used to have sidecars that the riders used to sit on. They had some that they used to kneel on. They call them kneelers. And mm-hmm. the other ones they used to crouch on with their knees up under their chest and the ugly things like that. And they, in, the, in those days, they never had fairings on them. <laughs> they never had fairings. And um, they made a little nose cone on the sidecar, and that was all. But the ones now are all fully fair. They're like a Formula One race car. And right. the driver the driver's actually sitting inside the fairing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so back then, so so neither the sidecar nor the whatever the, the main bike had much of a fairing, it sounds like. Not in those days, no, because most okay. of them were just were road bikes, road frames. <laughs> I mean the New Zealand guy was a New Zealand champion back in those days. He had a Norton Atlas that he had okay. And that was his, that was his frame in the bike, and it was but substantially just a still the Norton frame, but he lowered the whole thing. Right. Okay. So then, so was the 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 driver seating position different? Like, so I mean, it sounds like so those rigs were kind of a regular motorcycle, I guess, lowered as much as you could with some kind of sidecar attached. Where now, I don't know that much about them, but it looks to me like the sidecar rigs, are, like they're specially built as sidecars, right? Like they have a a tube frame and whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's an old friend of mine. Name is Clive Watson. He's probably one of the premier sidecar builders in Australia and New Zealand. And he runs under Watson Racing out of Perth, Australia now. And his um, his nephew and his niece ride it. His, his niece is a passenger. But he, all his life, he's been building sidecars. And they're, they're, he builds them from ground up now. There's no, nothing motorcycle. They've got tires on the back that are 10, 12 inches wide. And, Right. Same on the front, and they've got disc brakes all around, and you know they've got yeah you know, they're very they're very much a custom machine now right 
Yeah, it kind of reminds me, like like I said, even at the vintage races, and I, I don't know how old some of the bikes were. They're probably 70s, 80s. I guess maybe some of them could be 90s because that's even kind of vintage now. Um, but, you know, you, you could see them with the with the fairings and the body work off and whatever. And, and yeah, it's just like kind of, it just reminded me of like seeing like a NASCAR, you know, right. car. It's like a tubular, tubular frame and then it's got, you know, a skin that makes it look like, you know, a Chevy or a, Bu- you know, a Buick or whatever it happens to be. Exactly. So, you could yeah. probably Google Watson Racing in, in Perth, Australia, and there's pictures there of the bike without the fairings and stuff like that. You can see yeah. what it actually like. Right, right. Gotcha. But he's hey. the master builder. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. It's pretty cool. So I'll, so it, it's Wat, Watson Racing, you said? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So Same. I'll uh, yeah, I'll check that out. And uh, like I always, when I publish the podcast, I put like, you know, links to things we talk about in the show notes so people can go, go check out that website. Um, okay. And so now, so, so earlier you mentioned, is it, was it called leading link suspension? Yes. Okay. And so uh, just for the benefit of listeners, right? Cause some of my listeners are kind of new to motorcycles and, and whatnot. Can you just give a explanation of like what that is and you know, how it varies from other types of suspension? Or well, or the regular front forks we're all familiar with. I mean, a lead, to build a set of leading link forks, you would take fork tubes without sliders on them, and you would bend it underneath the, 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 the yoke at the head. You would bend the fork legs back at about 30, 40, 30 degrees, and, oh, wow. you, and um, you, you'd have a, a bigger U-shaped tube that would fit around the front wheel, and that would be anchored onto those tubes at the back. And in the front of the, in front of the tubes, coming down by when in front of that, it's a little hard to describe. Yeah. In the front of the U, you'd be the axle where you'd put the wheel, and going down from the the, the head yoke down to that where the axle mount, you put regular shock absorbers like you use on the rear of the bike, on the front. Oh, okay. So you have the the, the your, your suspension is being done by your regular rear end shock absorbers. And gotcha. it's just a much stronger um, uh, steering unit for something that's a big, heavy unit like a sidecar. If you put use do it with regular forks, of you have to brace them so heavily to stop them twisting and talking like that. When you, you know, you know, if you're going around a corner at 100 mile an hour on a regular set of forks on a sidecar, they're going to talk and twist and bounce all over the place. You're never going to keep it straight. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that totally makes sense. So, uh, I mean, obviously, so yeah, so you, you, you obviously have a little, at least some additional weight in the motorcycle itself because of the platform or the rig that the passenger is sitting in. But yeah, you've got two, you know, two, two bodies on there instead of one. Um, and uh, particularly, uh, well, actually, I guess a, a good question. So like, I, I do you know, like the, the top sidecar racers at, at least like at the time like what what kind of like the, the guys who you know really successful with the fastest or whatever like what what kind of body builds did they have were they were they smaller guys like you kind of have now like the you know top motor gp riders or, or generally you know fairly small in stature or was it kind of the the range of of you know heights yeah. and weights yeah the new zealand champion at the time was gordon skilton he was about 510 i suppose probably yeah 100 180 200 pounds Right. You know, and his, his buddy used to was always second to him. He was he was probably five six and two hundred pounds. I mean, they they were all sizes, you know. Sure, 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 sure. The, but pass, I, I, the, the passengers typically tended to be smaller because you didn't need you don't want two hundred pounds in the chair. I mean, I 
an ideal passing your weight was around 140, 150 pounds. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, that that makes sense. Yeah. So when so when so when you're racing, right? And so as the passenger, is, is there much communication between rider and passenger, or is it just kind of you? You know, the passenger just le- learns what they need to do, right? Because there's there's a lot to that, right? To being a passenger, you're not just going along for the ride. I mean, you're constantly shifting your body weight and you know right so that the bike is performing best around the corners and you know depending on you know you're going left hand right hand left hand turns like you're all over the place right yeah well the passenger knows his job if he's not if he doesn't know his job you're going to get you're going to wind up getting hurt there's no no communication between the driver and the passenger at all because the driver's got he's got his hands full trying to keep the thing on the road and you're trying to keep that third wheel down to a point you'll stay upright and um, but the the passenger to me it was just second nature. I mean, you get out there and you're doing a hundred mile an hour around a curve. I mean, you would you get your butt out next. You know, if you don't, you're going to be flipping. So you don't even have time to think about it. You don't be a driver to get out there. You just you just just know. It's just it's just survival instinct, basically. You gotta sure. Get- no, that makes sense. And and I guess there's a degree of kind of common sense. I mean, like you said, like you you feel the forces on your body and, and, and I guess you feel the motion of the motorcycle and you, so you just kind of naturally know what you need to do. Yeah. But yeah. you know, going into a corner, I mean, you know, when you, when the, as soon as the driver starts turning, I mean, you, you're, you're out there and just the biggest thing from a pass from the passenger's viewpoint, apart from knowing what to do is being able to do it smoothly. Right. You, you, you can't be jerking and jumping and banging the sidecar around. You got to, the, the driver should never know you're there. Yep. Okay. You know, it's you just you just got to be really really smooth with it. If you can't do that, you're not you know. So. No, that yeah, that totally makes sense. And and it's interesting too the what the point you make about the smoothness because I know, you know, I think I mentioned to you maybe not. You know, I've only been riding motorcycles for three years, so I'm you know fairly new to it. But you know, I'm trying to educate myself as much as I can, and you know, I'm doing that through reading books and whatever, and you know, particularly like books written by Keith Code, you know, from California Superbike School. And, you know, in, in, in that and like videos I've seen and just instructors I've talked to or even just listening to, you know, racers interviewed, you know, like on YouTube or on TV or whatever, that, that's one thing they stress is the importance of smoothness, you know, oh, which, yeah. does, which doesn't mean being slow, but like smooth throttle application, you know, doesn't mean you can't wick it up fast, but you, you can't be choppy, you can't be abrupt because it upsets the dynamics of the motorcycle. And so um, it, it's interesting, totally makes sense to me what you're saying that, you know, if you have the passenger who's weighing whatever from 140 to 200 pounds or whatever it is, and they're throwing their weight around, if they're not doing it smoothly or properly, uh, yeah, that would for sure give the the rider a heck of a time, I imagine. Oh yeah, completely. Just to mention, I know Keith Code quite well, so he's probably one of the premier T trainers in America. Yeah, yeah. Did um, did you train with him at all? No, no, no. Okay. I, I, I just know him through our church. That's all. Yeah. And, right. And um, but anyway, yeah, it's it's it, it's very much an instinctive thing. One thing I when I was in Australia, I, mean, I raced with on the first outfit, I think for about two seasons. And there was another guy, Vic Plummer, who was I think is on on your site, right? On your podcast or on oh. your uh, uh, yeah? Could you remember his name? Vic Vic Plummer. Um, uh, I, 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 a, fa- a young guy or an older guy? Oh, he's old. <laughs> he's seventy. 
Oh, uh, no, no, no. I don't think, no, I don't think. I mean, Keith Code is probably the oldest guy I've interviewed so far. Yeah, I know you haven't interviewed him. I know that, but I think he's on your, on your website. On your oh, Facebook like on, on the Facebook page? Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Okay. Vic, Vic has also been racing sidecars his whole life, and Vic is a, is a crazy engineer inventor. He is just, he built this um, out, whole brand new outfit, and he took it down to the first race meeting, and he had it all wrapped up in tops and stuff where no one could see it like that. And eventually, it went in for the scrutineering, which is the pre-race checking, and he went in there and had to unwrap the thing, and he had a, a Mini Cooper motor in this thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Dry, oh, right. Driving it through a Manx Norton gearbox. Okay. And, uh, it didn't. It just didn't work. So the powder weight. I don't know what the problem was, but it had. It didn't. It didn't. It wasn't a good combination. <clears throat> oh wow! And eventually, he sold the Mini Cooper motor, and the friend who put it in the Mini, and it was the fastest Mini in town. I mean, there's not wasn't a motor problem. Wow! It was something in the gearing was all screwed up. Gotcha. And so the, you know, the, the, this yeah. was back like seventies. Oh yeah, this was yeah, this is probably nineteen seventy. Okay, so this is original Mini Cooper, not the uh, not the yeah, the, oh, the, yeah. the re not the redo by BMW. No, the re the, re the real one, the old one. Yeah, wow, that's cool. But he took this thing and he, he ripped the motor out of that. And the next race meeting, he showed up with the thing wrapped up in a top again. You know, and everyone was, you know, what what are you doing, Vic? What do you got there? And uh, so he finally pulled the thing off. And remember, I don't know if you're familiar with the um, the Jap motor, the JAP B twin Speedway motor. No, no. It was built specifically for Speedway. It was made to do four laps and blow to pieces. Oh, wow. It was, okay. It was not made for long distance. It, it had a phenomenal amount of power. If you remember, the old, did you ever see the old Morgan cars? Sure. With a V-twin on the front? That was a Jap motor. That was a detuned Jap motor. Oh, wow. The one he had was a Speedway motor. And this, this bike, he could spin the back wheel at 100 miles an hour with two people on it. It was, it was amazing. Wow, the power. wow, wow. wow. And um, the, uh, the the Morgan was a three three wheel car, right? It was an old English three wheel car. Yeah, yeah, yeah two up front. Yep. Okay, I know what you're talking it, about. It was called a Jap J A P J A Preston was the maker. Of oh, that. Okay. But, but anyway, Vic said oh, after a while, he said, "I want to go to race at Bathurst, Australia." And the regular passenger couldn't go, and I said, "I said I'll come." <laughs> we got. We, I had I had no money at the time at all. And uh, he was leaving in six weeks, I think. So I went to work in a meat works and made some reasonable money for a few weeks. And we packaged the whole thing up, put it on the ship, and went to Australia. This is quite a long story, if I can. No, remember. absolutely. No, it sounds, that's good. It, uh, we wrapped the, the thing in a box and put it on the ship and took it to Australia. And I was halfway across the Tasman Sea to Australia. It was a three-day ride. and. I realized I, I had nowhere to stay when we got there. Okay, yeah. I, I had no money. Unfortunately, right. he had all this sorted out. But anyway, we got over there, and long story short, we went. We had this old Australian GM car called a Holden. Yep. And um, we went get out to Bathurst. It was about 150 miles west of Sydney. And we loaded the bike up, and we headed out about 5 o'clock in the night. We got about... 50 miles from home, out in the, way out in the country. And uh, the car just goes, and the motor died. Oh, wow. We'd, we'd stripped the timing gear in the thing. And uh, so we said, well, 
they drew straws. They go home and get Gary's car, pick his car up and come back out. So they drew straws and I I drew the straw to stay behind and look after all the equipment. Cause you leave a car on the side of the road in Australia, you come back next morning, its wheels are gone. Wow. They're just stripping, you know, so I was asleep in the back. So they go and get Gary's car and they come out there and they unhitch the trailer and try to, and, oh, there's, there's no tow bar on Gary's car. So we, we can't even hook the trailer onto the thing. Right. Being, being from New Zealand and very innovative people, we look around and we pull a file out of the toolbox and go to the farmer's fence and cut off about eight feet of fencing wire. And we, <laughs> and we literally we, we lash the trailer onto the bumper. Of this wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and headed off the bat. <laughs> uh, that's that's, got, that's we, innovative. Yeah, we were the we were the laughing stock of the place. We got there, people saw what we'd done, but you know we didn't go all the way from New Zealand just to be stuck on the side of the road. Um, unfortunately, the bike dropped a valve. You remember I said it was a speedway motor. It does four yeah. four quarter, it does, it does a mile and blows apart. And well, it did. I don't know if you're familiar with the Bathurst track, but it's two and a half two and a half miles, and it goes around up a hill and across the top and down the other side and back around and. Got a straight a mile long, so the cars top over 200 miles an hour on. Wow. And uh, we were on the way up the mountain the second time, and it spat a valve out the exhaust pipe, so that was the end of our race. You know? Yeah, I would, I would guess. I would guess. <laughs> but, um, that, yeah, that's interesting. So that, I mean, that, that motor was, just, like you said, it was built for Speedway, where I, I guess it kind of was you just rebuilt it after every race. Well, yeah, but then after that, we someone talked him into it had the old hairspring valves. I don't know if you remember what those are. If you yeah. look at the really early Manx Norton motors, they had exposed hairspring valves, which were a little hard to describe. I've just googled it. Yeah, sure. not, they weren't coil springs like the like the modern ones. Mm-hmm. And someone said, well, you know, you should get if you get rid of the hairspring valves and put some regular valve springs on it and all that. So we head into the shop and. The, they reworked the, the head and the valves and transferred it over to the um, coil springs, and it totally killed the motor. It had no power. Oh, it wow. Never, never got the power back into it again. It, uh, you know, it ran fine, but it just it just didn't pull like it used to. You know? That That's interesting. I, I mean, it makes sense. I Like, I get it. I mean, I'm not, you know, I've never done work on motors or anything like that. I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat mechanically inclined and, I'm, you know, trained as an engineer, so I kind of understand some of the basics. But, I, yeah, I guess I could see how just whatever, depending on the, the, the nature of how the spring is functioning and how the yeah. motor was designed. It's, yeah, that's kind of yeah. interesting. If you take your index and your middle finger from your right hand and put them against the index and middle finger of your left hand yep. and imagine the valve is in the middle of those and put your fingers up and down. Right. That's, how, that's how the hairspring used to use work. Okay. And that hooked on the valve. Wow. And it was it was literally about four or five inches long. Wow. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, that that's a fascinating thing too. Just like the technology and you know, not just motorcycles, but any anything like that. Cars and, and whatever, just you know, how mechanically you know the, the different ideas that have come up from time to time and, and just how things have kind of evolved. You know, you kind of take what we have now, and if that's what you're familiar with, it's like, oh, like it's, that's how it always was, but that's you know, not the case. Oh, no. you, know, you know, even things like, you know, when, um, and I forget the brand, the motorcycle, I don't know if it was Honda, right? One of the motorcycle manufacturers had experimented with like the Wankel rotary engine. Uh, that was, that was and, a Norton. Norton? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you know, all, all kinds of things. And, and it's interesting, too, because, like, even back, it's one of the things that fascinates me when you study this stuff, whether it's cars or motorcycles, like, how early on some of these ideas came about. You know, like, like right now, right, everyone's excited about electric vehicles, and, you know, they've been around for quite a few years now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And now, you, now you're starting to see electric motorcycles, and Harley-Davidson is going to come out with theirs next year. And, you know, they're, they're racing electric motorcycles in uh, MotoGP now. They have, like, the Moto E-Series. And then, then you find out that, if I'm not mistaken, like, the first, one of the first motorcycles was electric. Well, and certainly some of the first cars were electric. And, it, like, like, delivery vehicles were electric. And the reason was that, like, when you, when you built like, you know, a, a truck, a little truck or something to deliver milk early in the morning, you didn't want to be waking people up. So they went, yeah. with, a, uh, they went with electric vehicles. I was like, yeah. this goes back to like, whatever, early 1900s or something. And again, it's just interesting, like these things, you know, are invented and then whatever, I guess it's just not practical enough or certain problems that they can't solve. And then everybody forgets about it. And then someone rediscovers it or solves a problem. And it's like, oh, it's, it's all like all brand new, you know, so it's just fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but there's actually a documentary or a movie or something out there which was made some years back called Who Killed the Electric Car? Okay. It was deliberately killed. It, oh, it, okay. It, it didn't just fade on its own. It's because it didn't yeah. Work. I gotcha. Look at that. I believe they had, they had electric ones racing in the Isle of Man this year too, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, it's been a couple of years. I think this might be the fourth year, third or fourth year. I, I, and in fact, even um, they've had electric motorcycles racing up Pikes Peak. You know, yeah, out they did. Colorado, You're right. Colorado. They did. They did. So yeah, it's been, and I know it's been it's a couple companies like Bra I think Bramo was one of them, and I, f I forget some of the others. Ener Energica, right there, another one. That, actually, Energica is the one that's providing the bikes for for Moto E and the Moto GP series. But yeah, 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 fascinating stuff. I mean, even like, um, you know, and again, unfortunately, I forget the specific brands or models, but. Uh, maybe it was Kawasaki. I don't know if they were the first, but you know there were companies, motorcycle companies, you know that experimented with five-cylinder engines, and you know because we all think of like the common, you know, you have you know a V-twin or a parallel twin or an inline triple or an inline four, and you got a V4. But the, lots of things have been tried, you know. Yeah, well, you uh, go back. You go back to there was a Sunbeam motorcycle from the twenties somewhere, I think, which was an inline four. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And then he, I, remember, I remember seeing in 69 when the first uh, 750 Honda 4 came out. Right. And yeah, right. then the BSA and Triumph come out with a three-cylinder, you know. And, yep. Yeah, it's just interesting. And then I know you had shared a photo of, was it the, was it the Aerial 4? Yeah, that was a square four, yeah. Square four, right. So I... So, what was the idea with that? That like, like how did how did the pistons work relative to one another? Were they just like kind of up and down on the same plane, or were they opposed somehow? I have a feeling. I don't know too much about it. But I have a feeling I had two crankshafts. Okay, I think that might be you know in, in gear length. But the biggest problem with the square four was the back cylinders would overheat. They, okay. they couldn't cool. They them couldn't off. cool them enough. Yeah. No. It, Which, they were they were a beast of a motorcycle. I did a hill climb racing against one of them once. It was just, you know, it was really wow. cool to see it going. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that again, that's one of those things that it, they had a right idea. It evidently had benefits to it, but you know, if there was a problem that they couldn't solve, then it's just not practical, right? Because yeah, yeah, it would, it would fail, or it's too much maintenance, or or that kind of thing. Yeah, the technology just moves on. You know, they're forever developing stuff, as you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the um, so so that the bike that that you guys took to Australia that that was a sidecar rig. 
That was the sidecar. That was the, the one that was originally the mini-powered outfit. It's the same one. Yeah, okay. We raced out of Bathurst, and we took it up to Brisbane, which is that racetrack. There's a place that's south of Brisbane called Surface Paradise. Which is, sure. You know, if you've heard of that, it's yeah. um tourist trap. They had a, a good-sized racetrack there, and we, we took the old Holden up there with ball tires. <laughs> <laughs> we were jackknifing down hills as we were going. We couldn't get uh, wow. them. <laughs> we got it up there and we 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 I don't know if we actually have that one. I don't I don't think we finished the race up there even, you know. But we came home and on the way back down we there's a road rule in Australia. I don't know if it still exists, I hope not. It was the stupidest thing, but you have to give way to anything on your right. You can be coming out of a driveway and you have right away. Oh wow. You know, we got we got nailed by a bunch of kids in a car coming home we were going right into the sun we couldn't see a damn thing you know and the kids and then we got back to sydney and we got we got pulled up by the cops because over there a car like that they just red tag it on the side of the road and make you walk yeah it's only yeah. the fact that we had a trailer on the back and the whole many thousands of dollars with the race equipment they let's take the thing home you know mm-hmm. i i kept driving it for a few days and i got off work one night i was working as a mechanic and I walked out the back of the garage to get in the car, and here's a cop standing by my door. And I just walked right past and got on a bus. <laughs> <laughs> never uh, touched the never touched the car again. <laughs> right, uh, <laughs> I come back of, next morning, the wheels were gone. <laughs> oh, I got you. Yeah, it, it's funny you mentioned that because you know that's kind of a, I don't know how to put it. Uh, a, a kind of a common thing, like you know, it, like in New York City, for example, right? Like I, I live on Long Island, which is east, outside well, of New York City. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was but up I mean, but there, there are parts of New York City, you know, Queens, Brooklyn, Bronx, like different areas that, yeah, like it, it, if you if you leave a car on the side of the road, when you come back to retrieve it, it it will be stripped. You know, like yeah. the, wheel, the wheels oh, yeah. will be gone, whatever they can take out. Um, yeah, wheels and battery. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if it's as common as it used to, I, but I know it used to be a big problem. Like if, if someone, you know, whatever their car stalled on them, wasn't functioning. Like, like you said, like you did not leave the car alone. Like you hoped you had someone with you who could stay with it. Right. Um, you know, and, and even, I guess that's no guarantee, but in Australia, if you left it on the road, you just take the number plates off. Then they couldn't trace who it was, but yeah. the city would leave it there for a week. And at the end of the week, everything would be gone except the body. Then they just bring around a truck and pick it up, put it on the back of a truck, and take it away. <laughs> oh, okay, right. And then, I, and then I guess it went for scrap metal or something. Yeah, it was just scrap metal at that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's how yeah. people got rid of old cars over there. That's kind of interesting. But yeah. you know the um the the story you were telling about that, right? You know the, the the travails of getting the motorcycle to Australia, and then you know the problem with the you know not having a trailer hitch, and just like improvising and finding solutions. You know, kind of like. Like I, I love stories about that kind of you know tenacity. Like people just don't give up. It's like you you have a goal in mind, something you want to do, and that kind of you see it in lots of areas of life for sure. But it seems like a common thread in in racing and like motorcycle racing. You know, you just hear, and and in particular, like I like the stories you hear about community where you know people are out racing and whether it's club racing or semi pro or pro or whatever you know like someone has a difficulty their their bike's not running they need a part something went wrong and and there's like even though the other the other racers are your competitors they're often very willing to help out 
Oh, yeah. It's like, hey, you know, you know, borrow, you know, you can take this part or I've got some tools or, you know, even whatever. I've got a spare bike you can use kind of thing. Um, And I guess that spirit of like, you know, I guess in part and and you would know I've never raced, but I I guess it makes sense to me in part because like if you race like you you want to race, you want to compete against other people. You want to compete against the best kind of thing. Right. So it's like, you know, if there's a guy his bike's not down, you don't want to win because he couldn't race you know you want to like well no let me help you get your bike on the track this way i can beat you for real kind of thing yeah now that that's particularly prevalent in australia too australia australia's a crazy 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 they're brilliant crazy with their engines and stuff down there yeah there was a guy there i can't remember his name now but he had a g50 matchless matchless version of the 500 manx norton and he bored this thing out from 500 to 600 cc's and he built his own head. He built a four-valve head for it, and okay. he got this thing running. It, it was it's reputed to have a top speed of around 160 miles an hour, and he 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 would win everything he went into. Things. I was I was racing. I was racing a 500 Honda four in '71. Uh, there, this you know, I think the track was called Oran Park, which is just out of Sydney, and it was practice day, and I was out there doing my thing, screaming around there, and. And I hear, I was going at the end of the main straight, I then hard on the brakes, and I hear, brrr, 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 brrr. I thought, oh, shit, he's right behind me. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you could hear him coming? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You could hear him coming. And I was cranked over in the corner. He just sails right around the outside of me and just disappears into the distance. Wow. <laughs> oh. But they do, this is what they do down there. They, they, they had... 650 Triumph motors, they bore them out to 800 cc's and caught them up. And just you know, they're amazing the stuff they do with their engineering. And they're, they're, they're so innovative in how they deal with the you know, creating their motors and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I guess so, like, the, obviously, then there, there must be you know certain race classes that allow that, right? Where it's kind of like a uh, maybe open open class is not the yeah. way to put it, oh, right? Oh. Where, where it's kind of like, hey, so I guess here's some basic rules about what you can and can't have, and then and then people just innovate and yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, the sidecar world was the same, you know. They that 650. I was telling you, they bought out to 800. That was a sidecar motor. You know, okay. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. The, um, I raced the 500. And I raced that at Bathurst too, and. Uh, I, I mean, I rode it from Sydney out to Bathurst on the road. I couldn't have a trailer, didn't have a car. And you know, I got out there and took the took the glass out of it and put some numbers on the thing and took the mirrors off it and right. got out and got on the track. You know, and we, I think there was something like seventy over seventy bikes. They started in the front of the grid was the open class, which was all the seven fifty. That was as big as they had in those days. Right. And behind that, there was. 650s and 500s, then the, all the 250s and 350s all the way back. And um, the start, I, I got an inside grid, inside line on the grid, and it, it, it was all, it was all um, most of the bikes in those days were Kawasaki triples. They just, they just come out, and they were, they were all kick-start. Mine, mm-hmm. mine had electric start. Okay. So we all had to start with motors off, and I, as soon as the flag dropped, I just brushed the button, and my, I was already in gear. And I, I made about fifty positions off the start line. And, wow. uh, I took off up there. If you look, at, if you look, if you pull up the Bathurst track, there's a place on there called the Skyline, which is right at the top of the mountain. I mean, you zigzag up through the mountain, 
there's a big boomerang across the top and there's a straight about a couple of hundred yards long. And they call the skyline because that's all you can see. It's just okay. the road that stops at the sky. And right at that skyline, you're cranking over onto your muffler, down to the right and down through a dipper and on down the mountain. It's just, I, was, I was going through there. I wasn't, I wasn't shutting off. I wasn't breaking for skyline. I was going over it. And I wasn't breaking until I had hit the dipper. Wow. And I was following this guy in a 650 Gamma, and he had a bit more power than me. And he, he beat me up the mountain, and I chased him right across the top of the mountain through the boomerang. They got to the skyline, and the bastard braked on me. Mm. And I, was, I was right in his slipstream. I thought, you know, and I, I hit the brakes. I locked up. I was all half sideways. And there's a lot of people died up there because if you fall off there, you're going to go literally go over a cliff face. Oh wow! Okay, so that that's kind of like uh, like Pike's Peak, like there's sections of yeah. Pike's Peak that are like that. There's no barrier; it's just there's, you just there's nothing. But, yeah, wow. I don't know if there's a barrier now, but it scared the crap out of me. So anyway, I chased him all the way down the mountain, and I finished. I think I I, I was first 500 home, and I think I finished 17th overall out of something wow. like 4750s. Wow! So yeah, then, I, so so like so that race, they were running multiple classes at the same time, which I guess were scored separately. Yeah, different classes. Yeah. Okay. They so yeah, you, you had like so like what was it? You had like the what was like the five hundreds was kind of the top. No, the, the, there was the open. There was the open class and the two fifties. I think were the only two classes. Okay. I, I raced in the open class, but the right. thing, the guy that came, the guy that came right behind me, his name was Warren Willing, and he was Australian champion later on in his young years. He finished. I finished seventeenth. He finished eighteenth. Among seventy-eight bikes on a two hundred and fifty Suzuki, wow! He was amazing. He was an amazing rider. The guy, he was unbelievable. But, so, uh, so that must have—I mean, for the spectators, that must have been a really cool thing to see, like that many bikes at once. You know, like I—I've seen races like on TV, like Moto America, like now, like um, Twins Cup Series. You know, they'll—they'll they'll get upwards of thirty bikes. Um, you know, Superbike is usually. 12 to 16 but to see 70 bikes on the track that must be that must be quite a quite a spectacle yeah when you when you got a two and a half mile circuit i mean there's plenty of room to spread out yeah sure and you get you get on the straight I, I i i was clocking 120 on the speedo on my bike i don't know what i was doing in the real world yeah but on one lap in practice there was a guy in front of me about 100 yards on a 750 honda and I tucked in. I tucked in. I chased him. And I, I outbraked him at the end of the straight. And I said to him, "What are you? What are you? What were you pulling down the straight?" And he's about 120 on his 125 on his speedo. Right. So I, on my 500, I caught him up and outbraked him. Wow. So wow. I, my mind was fast. You know, I, I when I ran that thing, I bought that thing brand new. I think it was one of the first first ones in Australia, and I rode it from Darwin up way up north Australia. I used to work offshore oil rigs up there. We rode it right down through Alice Springs in the center. Then we went by train from there down to Port Augusta, which is about 200 miles north of Adelaide. And from there I went Melbourne, Sydney, and then right up Cairns Townsville, right up the East Coast and sold it up there. But when I ran it in, I did 1,000 miles down to Dallas Springs, and after that I just rang the guts out of the thing. And the more, the faster I rode that thing, the faster it went. It was an amazing bike. Wow. wow. I loved it. And it was... And that one, that was the Kawasaki? No, that was a 500 Honda 4. Honda, gotcha, 4. Okay. It first came yeah. out in 71. Right, right, right. So I raced that in two two meetings over there, two or three meetings over there, I think. Wow. The other one the other one was a, was a racetrack I didn't like. Gotcha. But, um, um, 
so when uh, I think I had asked you this when we were chatting last night, but so when when you were racing, were were you like was were you getting paid at all, or was was there anything in the way of prize money? Like, were you kind of pro, semi pro, or was this basically just for fun? I was just having fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was, okay. I don't I don't know what the winners got. There was, I know there was. I never certainly never made any money, but um, there would have been prize money for the second, third. But I don't have no idea. I was okay. never close enough to pick up any, and I, I just, I just loved it. It was great fun, you know. No, absolutely. I mean, just to be, just to be out on the track racing, you know. I mean, yeah. just being able to, to, you know, wring everything you can out of the motorcycle and just without cars and traffic and all that kind of stuff has got to, yeah. got to be a blast. It was yeah. Awesome. Were, um, um, were, were any of those races like the guys that were winning on a regular basis? Were they making a living that way? Do you know or? Not in those days. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think Warren went on to he went over to Isle of Man and he raced around England and Europe for a long time. I, I'm sure he would have made money over there, but I, again, I, I'm sure he only paid his expenses. You know, yeah. pretty expensive. You don't have sponsorship even now. You know. Sure. No, I, yeah, I know that's a pretty common thing. Like, uh, like even in Moto America, you know, I've interviewed a couple of racers, and and it varies there depending on the class they're racing. But uh, you know, Chris Bay is one of the guys that I interviewed. You know, kind of, I think like your situation then, like he he does it just because he loves it and yeah. he just wants to go out and race. And it, you know, he says net net, it's costing him. You know, but he has some sponsors and he has some help and. Uh, yeah, it's one of the reasons I stepped up, and I just figured I would, I would support and sponsor him a little bit. You know, it helps get exposure to the podcast and whatnot. But he just does it because he loves it. And, yeah. you know, so maybe he doesn't have enough money to put into the bike that he's running out in the front. But, you know, he, he's out with some talented riders and getting to race these tracks. And so I, I, I definitely see I, I, I see the attraction of it, you know. Yeah, and he's learning, too. I mean, he's always, he's always going to get better. Yep. If he ever wins, he's getting to get better and better and better, you know. It's just... Yeah. If you can afford to keep your machine in one piece, don't sure. crash. No, which unfortunately he did at the last race, but uh, that's you know so kind of how how life goes. Yeah, uh, a good crash can ruin your year. You know, you didn't uh, you're buying sure. a new bike or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. when I, I I raced that I, after I'd raced that in Sydney, I rode it right up the east coast of Townsville, which is about eighteen hundred miles north of Sydney. And I, I, I got up there and I was broke. I was just, I couldn't I couldn't buy gas to get out of town. I had nothing. Right. You know, and I found a guy on the street who agreed to buy the bike. So I sold him the bike. I sold him my leather jacket and my helmet and all that. And like, thanks for the money. I went and bought a nice camera and hitched a ride back to New Zealand. You know, and I went back there and smoked illegal substances for about six months, eight months, and. And I was up in Auckland one night. I was driving home from work one night and fast as <clears throat> past this motorcycle shop. I'm like, geez, I wonder what they got in there these days. I hadn't been in one for a while. I go in there and here's this H2 Kawasaki, the blue 750 triple sitting in the shop room. Wow. I was, I was looking at this thing and the, the salesman come over. He said, you ever ridden one of those? I said, no. He said, here's the key. Take it for a ride. I said, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you're, I said, how do you, you like it even ride it? You know? He said, well, you wouldn't be looking at it like that if you couldn't ride it. Right. So he let me push it out of the shop and put me on it and sent me off down the road. You know? And away I went. I come back and I said, um, how much is it? And it was $1,800. Was it? No. It was $1,470 brand new. Wow. 71 model. And um, I said, I, I have no money. He said, you got 10 bucks on you? I said, yeah. He said, give me that. I'll hold it for you for three days. 
Oh. So I gave, I gave him 10 bucks. I went home and I tell him my girlfriend's brother about it. And he said, oh, God, what do you got we can sell? I had all this camera gear because I'm a fairly avid photographer. He said, let's sell all your camera gear. And I said, okay. So I stuck that out in the paper. I, I sold that. I needed $600 for the deposit on the thing. And we sold it for 600 bucks. Oh, wow. So I went, I went back in on the Wednesday and paid it and rode it out. And the next day I was riding to work on the thing. This this was a nice bike. It, um, I was riding up this around these back streets and there's up went up this hill about a hundred yards over the crest and this beautiful S bend right through the middle of the road. I cranked it through there about seventy miles an hour. I thought, oh my god, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the next day I get up there do the same thing and I'm through the come out of the S bend and here's a city bus turning right in front of me. Oh boy. And I I locked the brakes far enough to lock the brakes up and I drifted into it sideways and the bike went under the bus. Uh, I hit the I hit the bus and I had it in my helmet right above about half an inch below the above the visor line. I had a a hole almost right through the helmet. That would have killed me if I hadn't had that on. But I took a lot of skin off. It didn't break any bones. I took the um they didn't admit me to hospital. I had concussion. They woke up and they closed the ambulance doors on me. But I called the insurance company and said, "Well, we can't get out till after Christmas." And this was three weeks before the first race meeting of the year. And the only reason I bought it because I wanted to race. I thought, yeah. I'm not going to miss the whole season because of this. And so I, was, well, I convinced this insurance adjuster, I said, I need to come out and look at this thing. Okay, I'll come out tomorrow. He came out. So he, he did, and he, he agreed to fix it and all that. And the, the bike was in the, in the shop opposite, over the road where I actually bought it. And um, he said, the, the foreman of the shop said, we can't get at this thing until next year. I said, man, you're going to work. I said, I just, I said, I'll make you a deal. I said, you give me all the parts you would put on this bike to fix it. And I will take them away and I will fix the bike. And you can charge what you like. I said, I want you to you let me respoke the front wheel in the shop. And he said, deal. So I respoke the front wheel myself and I put that in and I rode the bike home. And I raced it with a bent tank and bent mufflers for two and a half years. <laughs> wow. I kept all the new stuff when I sold it. And, uh, but I, I raced that thing and thing with those it never handled it handled like a bloody hinge it was horrible right you know, big sweep in corners and with tanks slap like crazy i got black flagged at race meetings because of the way this thing and no one no i couldn't find anybody that could figure out what the problem was eventually one guy bob haldane who has a motorcycle shop in auckland he's a new zealand champion. he's looking this thing over and he said he got hold of the front wheel and he got it, and he just gave it a violent left-right shake, just as hard as he could do. And the, the wheel went click, click. He said, when you put the spindle in the front axle, how tight do you do it? He said, well, I put the thing in, I do the nut up, it's just tight, and I just back it off a quarter, you know, quarter of a turn. So the wheel spins. He said, no. He said, you don't do it like that. You do it there, you do it up till it won't turn, then you give it one more full turn. Lock it up dead tight. Then you put it back on the bike, and you crack the front wheel, and it'll spin beautifully. Wow. But so the, and so that that was on the axle, the wheel axle? Yeah, that was on the front axle, yeah. Okay. And wow. So I, I did that, and it handled fine after that, you know. But no, I mean, it took me two years to find someone who knew that. Who knew that, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, now, did, did he, you know, did he know that because of experience specifically with, with that model bike, or it's just something he had run into? He had, a mo- he had a motorcycle shop. He had a repair yeah. shop. I, I, don't, I don't know if he had Kawasaki's or what he had, but... He, he he knew enough to look at that, but I I must ask 
50 people what you know if they had any ideas why it was so bad yeah and i'd pulled the thing apart i'd run strings down the wheels and i'd checked that i'd done everything i possibly could the, the front nothing was bent the frame wasn't bent the forks weren't bent and it's just a dang axle it wasn't tight enough you know wow that's 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 really interesting and and that's like i i guess in part where you know you kind of get into the the black black art you know of, of, of mechanics and motorcycles and, and racing and stuff right and and the thing that you know that you have problems like that that are not easily you know whatever like there's no common solution and, and you need someone who really knows what the hell they're doing to, to sort it out and then they do and it just makes a huge difference i mean that, that's one of the things i think that fascinates me so much about racing and motorcycle racing is just that the technical stuff that's involved you know there's the technical of the electronics but then there's all the mechanics and the physics of it and the setup of the bike and you know the things that like something like that it seems like a very simple thing but it could make all the difference in the performance of the bike right oh, and, yeah. and, and especially when you look and, and you know maybe this has kind of always been true but particularly when when you look at the top levels of motorcycle racing and the fact that you know the the, the top three or maybe five spots can be separated by fractions of a second Right. You, know, like, like, you, you could have like half a second or whatever, you know, between first and fifth place or something like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, things like that can make a huge difference. Yeah, right? exactly. It was, uh, but yeah, three of the main tracks we raced on over that six week Christmas period in New Zealand had hundred mile an hour sweepers in them. Wow. Okay. You know, and I, I could, I couldn't do it. I mean, I just, the only way I could get around over that tank slapping was slow right down and just crank the throttle right through the corner. Mm-hmm. But under acceleration, it would be thanks. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, now, was um, I, you know, I know nowadays a a solution or a, a way to like mitigate tank slappers is like use a steering damper. Was was anyone doing that at that time? Had that been invented yet? Oh yeah, no, it was around. That's what we used on the old BSA sidecar was the damn the steering damper to help when before uh, we hit before yeah. we hit the traffic island. <laughs> we had the steering damper. We actually had two steering dampers on it. It still barely worked. Right. Uh, yeah, they were around. They weren't okay. coming out standard on the on the production bikes, so yeah, you, know, you could buy them if you wanted to. Right, right, gotcha. So back um back when you were racing, like what what was the gear like? Like the the gear that you wore, helmets, jackets, and stuff. I mean, I, I guess you you know you know you wore leather if you could, but like what what, what, oh, yeah. what was the yeah? You had to wear you had to wear leather. I had a kangaroo hide, okay. um, racing leathers. Everyone, everyone wore black in those days. There was yeah. no, no colored leather. But when we went to Australia, we, Vic and I both had kangaroo hide um, racing leathers made. It's beautifully soft. It's, 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 it's almost like a chamois leather. And um, then, you know, the helmet and gloves and boots. You had to wear boots. But, you know, helmet, gloves, leathers, boots. Right. They went, when, when I first started racing, most of the guys were still racing in the old pudding ball helmets. Right. You know, which was stupid. The, the space helmets were just coming out, you know. And the, yeah. the old diehards that refused to wear the space helmets because they bought the the enemy line that space helmet, if you crash, it's going to break your neck when your head gets back and all this sort of stuff. And, okay. You know, there was one dandy, one guy, Andy Martin. He was New Zealand champion at one point. He was around the houses race, and he, he was one staunch supporter of the pudding ball helmet. He wouldn't refuse outright to wear the space helmet and he on this track and he, he lost it on a corner and he skidded across the road and he whacked his head right below the helmet line on the curb. Uh, 
he was unconscious for three months. He never raced again. Wow. Didn't kill didn't kill him, but he was a he was a different guy when he woke up. You know, it just sure. ruined him. Yeah, no, no, I got it. So then, so it's interesting. So that, so the space helmets, like, I guess, did that actually like come? It, did did that come from the space program, or was it just that they they look like you know the the, the original helmets look like you know what the astronauts wore? I think probably the latter. I don't really know how the development of them, but they were commonly known as the space helmets, space time yeah. helmets. Okay. Gotcha, I think it was gotcha. the early seventies when the when the full face came out. Right. Full, and and then in the in the the suits like the leather suits did they have padding and stuff like they have now or no nothing like that okay. that was one of the that was one of the biggest problems as a passenger if you had a track where you had your ass hanging on the road for good parts of it every every race meeting you'd wear through the leather and take oh, well. skin off your butt it's the worst place and the most painful place on your body to take skin off right it takes okay. forever to heal and it just is mug damn it hurts sure so but, that know, you, so that would happen so that would happen and you'd lose skin just as a normal part of racing like aside yeah, from crashing yeah. or anything no yeah. it, not in the crash i mean just you just have yourself hand your butt hanging so far out and it gets a, a little bit of a bump and it bounces on the road and it, you know it, it just it just drags yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Then you go get them patched up again i don't know why we never put a great big heavy patch on it but it just we mm. never did <laughs> Right, right. Well, it's, yeah. I, I, well, I guess you know whatever. No one thought of it, and so it wasn't. The, yeah. It wasn't the focus. And then we, I know you, you mentioned we, uh, we like we like the pain. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so you mentioned kangaroo skin. If is that, if I'm not mistaken, that is the toughest or one of the toughest leathers, right? I don't know. I really don't. Know. I don't know. It's just, most of the guys in this racing guys in Australia had kangaroo hide out uh, leathers. Yeah. Okay. They were so soft and comfortable to wear. Right. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I have to check into that. And then um, the other thing, too, I was thinking as we were talking, um, John Britton, he's from New Zealander, right? Yeah, before the poor guy died, yeah. Was yeah, yeah. Wow, okay. Because I know, I, I don't know, I haven't read up a great deal about him, but I know he was quite the engineer, right? I mean, he had a lot of uh, innovative thinking, you know, when it came to motorcycle design and whatnot. There's, he, he, had a, he was, he, he built that, Bike. There's a whole documentary on on um, YouTube on him. About there's several actually. Okay. They they built that thing from scratch pretty much. I mean, he built the engine from scratch and everything. The the, the front end, all the front forks, which don't dive under heavy braking. He redesigned them, and they're a design that has still not been accepted in the regular motorcycle community. No, right. no one, no one's copied it. You know, he was so far ahead of his time. But he, he built that thing there, and the first time he came, he brought it over here to Daytona. And the first race meeting they went, he was had the, he had the thing standing on the back wheel going past the factory to caddies like they were standing still. The power was phenomenal in this thing. But he was so far out in front of the race, and the um, battery died. They put the – someone – they were so tired, they hooked the battery and back to front, and they killed the battery before the race finished. He didn't get to finish it. Oh, but eventually, in subsequent years, he won the Bears race in Daytona. They won. He won. He won races all over the world with that. He built ten of them. That's all he did. Okay. Before, before he died, and they're and they're worth hundreds of thousands of dollars now. If you can. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm trying to think because uh, two two years ago I was down at Barber Motorsports Park and you know spent 
a lot of time in the museum museum there. I'm pretty sure they have at least one of his bikes. Yeah, um, quite but very, very distinctive looking and just the colors that he used or whatever, like really, really helped it stand out. But it is it is interesting, like to your point about, you know, people come out with these innovations, like really, really clever engineering ideas. And it, it either they're not accepted or it takes time, you know, before people will because it's just such a different different way of looking at things, I guess. Yeah, but see, back most almost every race bike these has a fairing on it. He put a fairing on his and went slower, slowed him down, so he got rid of it. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. he just raced it out. But you, if you look at the bike, he's got fairing on the foot pegs for the feet. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. He's got the radiator is not on the front. The radiator is up under the seat in the back. I mean, there's lots of innovative stuff. You know, in the front, the the motor is is an integral part of the frame. It's it's um, a stress frame member. Right, right. That's uh, right. all. Everything's hanging off the motor. Yeah, was was he was he the first to do that? Do you know? I don't know. It was pretty innovative what he was doing. I don't yeah. know if he was the first. Yeah. But, um, but they, 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 it's a it's a great it's it's a great uh, video. You should, it's well worth watching the thing to see how. Yeah, it. I'll no, I'll look for it. I'll check it out. That yeah, that sounds fascinating. And then uh, the other the other racer that comes to mind. And I don't remember. I don't know if he was New Zealander or Australian. Was Bert Monroe? You know the uh, world's fastest Indian. Oh, Bert! No, oh, yeah, he's New Zealand. He was Vic Plummer that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Good mates was good mates with Bert. Oh, really? They were both half crazy. Okay. You know everything Bert did, Vic still does. Vic, here's a story about Vic Plummer. He lives up in Brisbane and North in Australia right now. He found a frame. Part of a frame of an old um, Douglas motorcycle. He found the frame. It had the, had the frame number on it, on the piece oh. of metal he found. And he oh. also found an engine plate that had the engine number on a crankcase half. And he did some research, and he was told by the Douglas Club in England, if you've got both those numbers, you have the bike. You own the bike. Okay. What Vic did, he, he rebuilt bike from scratch engine motor everything tank you name it and it runs you know he's that sort of engineer he's like he's like john Britton. he's the same type of guy he's just he's just brilliant with metals and doing stuff and yeah yeah but uh i i know i i don't know how true it was to the actual story but i, I know that movie the world's fastest indian is just awesome um, oh yeah oh yeah you know it's, and An- anthony hopkins just says it's such a great Great job in that role. It's just like really inspirational, you know, like yes. one of those like, yeah, really cool stories. Yeah. I know in my in my scrapbook, which is stashed away somewhere, I have a, a two-page, big two-page magazine article on Bert and all his carrying on, including peeing on his tree and all that. It was all, well, that was all true. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's, 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 he, he, he was a dirty, he was a real ladies' man, apparently. So oh, I, really? I, okay. Oh, yeah, it, it was a, I, yeah. I'm sure the you know, artistic license was used a lot for the, the substance of the story. And his record still stands. And no one's ever broken them. Oh, wow. That's, you know, that's, that's interesting. I don't know when they set that, in the, back in the 60s or early 70s, something like that. I don't, I don't know what date it was. but He was a character all but He really was. He was just... Yeah, yeah. So, um... So what what do you think? Like so, there there's a theme here, definitely, right? About New Zealanders and motorcycles and racing and engineering and like what um, 
And, and it's interesting too because you, when we chatted last night, and, and it's not exactly the same thing, but you know, I just mentioned the fact that you know I'm a big fan of the Lord of the Rings movies, right? And a lot, you know, most of the most of those movies were filmed in New Zealand. Like, there's just, um, and and, it, and it's like a place that a lot of not a lot not a lot of people have been to, kind of thing. You know, right. so so I, I guess my point is there's obviously a lot of creativity and and engineering prowess and whatever comes comes from New Zealand. What do you what do you think? Is it? Uh, I'll, I'll is tell it, you. Is it the look, climate? Is it the water? Is it the? <laughs> no, well, New Zealand was so far off the trade lines of the world for so many years. It's only the last twenty or thirty years that New Zealanders, the, the world's communication lines are hooked up with New Zealand. Okay. I mean. Until we New Zealand won the America's Cup for the first time, no one in America knew where New Zealand was. Mm-hmm. We, we won. We suddenly took the America's Cup home from America, and suddenly, oh, you know, New Zealand. My God, look at that! You know, Cincinnati. We still hold it. We hold it. I think we won it twice, three times since. Wow! Being held again in the next year back in Auckland again. But going back to New Zealand, what I think because we were so far off the trade lines, we were not up to date with what was going on in the world. So we did our own thing. Yep. I mean, aerial fertilizing of farmland, you know, aerial top dressing, it was basically all invented in New Zealand. It was mm-hmm. the hill, hill country. They couldn't get tractors and stuff to fertilize. Um, the Wright brothers, supposedly the first people to fly an airplane, not true. They flew one in New Zealand before the Wright brothers. They have it pretty well documented that it happened several weeks before the Wright brothers. And there was a wow. guy in France about the same time as well. So three different places around the world, people suddenly started flying airplanes. You know? Yeah. But we're very innovative people. We just, we need something. We figure it out and make it. Right. You right, know? Right. I mean, you, did you know New Zealand is now has, is in the space race? We have rockets. We, we, we fire our own rockets into space. Did you know that? Vaguely, I remember hearing that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, so I mean, cool. it's a little little country of four million people. You know. Yeah. I mean, McLaren race cars come out of New Zealand. You know. Oh, that I did not know. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. Bruce Bruce McLaren. I mean, I used to watch him race when I was a kid. Okay. So, is he also a New Zealander? Oh yeah. Okay. Wow. wow, wow. Yeah, that's that's fascinating stuff. Yeah, I, I like. I have heard more and more about like high tech things happening in New Zealand, and it's it's interesting too because. The other thing that interests me is like, you know, like we've, we've talked a little bit about Isle of Man, the races and whatnot, but it was only recently, six months ago, that I, I don't know how it came up exactly. You know, I try to keep up to date on what's going on in the technology world and whatever. And uh, it, it turns out like Isle of Man, they're, they're putting a heavy, heavy focus on developing it as like a high tech hub, like a high tech center. So, oh, really? you know, not, not only do you have, okay, the, the racing that's done there, right, which is kind of the you know, top level in motorsports or whatever, but then they also are really trying to develop this really high-tech center. That's, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool to see. It, it is. Yeah. I, no, I, no, I'd not heard that. You know, I, just, I, I don't watch too much Isle of Man because all you get is the one corner. Uh, no, I know. I mean, the, the TV coverage is actually pretty good. Like, and that's, like I, I, would, I would love to go to Isle of Man. Like, I, wa- I would like to experience it just because, and I've talked about this on the podcast, you know, there's a difference and both are good, but there's a big difference between seeing a race live and seeing it on TV. And, and both, oh. have, you know, both have advantages and disadvantages. But I, I would love to just, uh, you know, observe and just take in that whole atmosphere of Isle of Man, like what happens during that week. You know, obviously, it's not the only race. There's other races that are run on Isle of Man. But, uh, 
yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. But yeah, it, it's because the track is so long and they run, I don't know, it's like a 35 minute lap time or something like that. It's, I've joked about that. You know, basically, you know, I guess you sit at the pub with your beer and you watch and you know, motorci- <laughs> a motorcycle goes, you know, and like a couple go by, wah, 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 and then you wait half an hour, <laughs> you have another drink. It was always my dream to race there, but I never did. And it's just, you know, age, age got the better on me. Was, yeah. Well, that, that would have been cool. That would have been cool. I lost a friend there, you know, and it's just, it just sort of put me off a little bit. Sure. Yeah, it's it, it's uh yeah we talked about that a little last night. It's it's um what's the what's the way to put it? It's just like I said, it's kind of the the dark side of racing, and particularly Isle of Man. And I don't oh, I don't know I don't the I don't know the exact numbers, but probably at least one person dies a year. You know. Yeah. 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 You're right. It's one. It's one. Uh, one to three a year, pretty much every year. Yeah, and it it's known and it's understood, and you know the the guys that race there, you you know they're eyes wide open. I mean they they know the risks and they know what can happen and they do it anyway. And you know again, I, I you know I guess just when it comes to the risk reward and what they get out of it, they they feel the benefits far outweigh the risks. And you know yeah. maybe in in part they whatever they just ignore it, they just put it out of their heads, you know, and they just they do their thing and it's just interesting I, I think it's a very extreme form of it but you know it's it's kind of like what's your philosophy of life you know do you want to you know live, live it to the max and get everything squeeze everything you can out of it or do you want to be conservative and not take chances and you know whatever that's an individual decision people need to make but i i respect i respect the people that do that they put it on the edge i mean it reminds me of um a documentary i saw a couple months ago uh, what the heck is it? not free climb something. It's about a guy who does, um, you know, he, he climbs vertical rock surfaces without ropes. Uh, okay. Didn't he get killed? Not that I know of. Well, at least not as of the documentary, maybe since then, I don't know. Yeah. And, and I, I forget the guy's name, but he did a free climb of, um, you know, a couple of the, the big rock faces in Yosemite national park half. Yeah. Half Dome and El Capitan or whatever. It's a fascinating story. Um, and, and again, the thing, you know, he did it, you know, knowing that if he messes up, he's going to die. But that yeah. was part of the attraction for him. And it was just interesting to see um, just, you know, like mentally everything that he went through in that. And, and then, you know, he had this girlfriend and, and she would travel with him. And, you know, they interviewed her about her feelings about the whole thing. And, yeah, you know, she was basically like, look, you know, I want to be with the guy. So I have to accept this is what he does. Like, I can't. What am, what am I going to try to get him to stop? It's what he loves. You know, so it's just yeah. uh, anyway, it's an interesting human story. So I'll, and, I'll, uh, I'll find the title of the movie. I'll put it in the show notes if people want to yeah. check it out. Yeah, one of one of those famous guys that used to do that. I don't know if it's the same guy we're talking about, but he he did fall, and he was in his early thirties, and he fell and killed himself. So, okay. you know, when your time's up, your time's up. You know, there's not a damn thing you can do about it. Yeah, so, yeah you're yeah. gonna fall off a cliff face from three hundred feet up. You're gonna fall. Right. You know? Right. 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 Uh, I think the one that's stretching is um, luck and his abilities is Tom Cruise, but. <laughs> So yeah, no, he's a, he's an interesting character. Stunts. Yeah, doing all his own stunts and everything. And and yeah. there again, you know, I guess he just, I I get it. Like one, I think he enjoys it. Uh, two, oh, he does. He loves know, it. He's he's a professional, and he he wants to you know make the best movie he can make. And uh, for sure, it's a lot more realistic. You know, yeah. if if yeah. the actor is doing the stunts and you don't need a stand-in or a double or whatever. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. yeah, interesting stuff. Talking about things that came out in New Zealand, one of the other things was Ernest Rutherford, who was the first guy to ever split the atom. Oh wow! 
That's there's so there's so much stuff that came out of New Zealand that was invented over the years. It's unbelievable. Hypodermic syringe come out of New Zealand, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. just, it's just it's it's an amazing little country for three and a half four million people. Sure. Yeah, not but, to mention even if you go over to Speedway, we've had seven or eight world Speedway champions over the years. Okay. You know, I've been major. I've been major Barry Briggs and guys like that. We got another guy right now on the verge of becoming. Right. Uh, and that, that that's motorcycle speedway. Right? Yeah, motorcycle speedway, the quarter mile. Yeah. So now like I've I've heard of Speedway and I've seen like little clips here and there, and I think it's pretty popular in Japan. But what's like what's the what's the basic idea? Like what's the concept? How does it differ from other forms of motorcycle racing or well from differing from American dirt track, but uh, speedway, they call that called English Speedway. Which is not strictly English; it's you know it's all English European. But yeah. it's a 500 cc motor, basically on a bicycle frame, no brakes. Right. It just got a clutch, and that's a quarter, typically a quarter mile cinder track, and you get out there and it's just as fast as you can crank the damn thing and just lay it on its side and keep it wide open. You know, the moment you shut the throttle off in the corner, you're lying on your side on the track. But it's um. Man, it's exciting stuff to watch, man. They do four laps. That's all they do. Every race is four laps. Okay. But they do a, a meet at night. They might have 16 or 20 races. You know, there's plenty of, plenty of action and stuff going on. Then they also have the sidecars, too. Which, man, those guys, those guys are just, if you want to see some crazy loot, look up side, speedway side, uh, sidecar. Speedway yeah. sidecars, yeah. No, because so they, they got thousand cc motors on them cranking. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Now is that so? That's the same speedway track that the speedway bikes are on, I guess. Yeah, yeah they go the, they go the opposite direction. That's the only difference. Oh, okay. Because I've also seen I don't know what they call it, but like sidecar racing where they actually jump jumps, like that's the, like, mo- like the sidecar motocross. motocross. Yeah, motocross. yeah, it's like sidecar motocross. Yeah, <laughs> <like>, yeah. <laughs> you know now that you know it's kind of funny, right? Because like I I have a certain level of crazy, I guess, but that that. I don't know. I just look at that and I go, okay, cool. Like if those guys like it, but that that's just a level. Of, <laughs> that's a level of crazy. I don't think I would do. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's yeah. No, that 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 that's tough, man. Doing that stuff. Yeah. I mean, you you get on a racetrack. You know, Bathurst doing six laps at two and a half miles a lap, which is like twenty five miles. Yeah. You get you by the time you get into the pits, you are absolutely shot. You just oh, sure. oh my god! But these guys in the Isle of Man are doing. Three left what, for three laps. So this is at a hundred and averaging hundred and twenty five miles an hour now. Yep. Yep. Man, you gotta be fit for this stuff, you know. Oh, absolutely. And and that that's one of the reasons I respect it a lot. And it's it's funny when you know, I, I hear people, you know, say, well, you know, motors, motorsports isn't a sport, you know, car racing, motorcycle racing, that's not a sport. Um, and, and because they don't understand, but you know, that the, the analogy I've made, like I, I've just done something simple, like race go-karts on a go-kart track. And if you, if you get in a go-kart and you race that thing as fast as you can, like as you yeah. know, without flying off the track, after a couple laps, you're gonna feel it. You're gonna, oh yeah, I, <laughs> I've done it. Up, I know. I've, yeah. I pulled out of, I pulled out of the last race I was in. Yeah, I mean, I, could, I couldn't do it. Your arms hurt. Your neck is strained. It's like yeah. it's it's amazing. I know. And then you look at what these guys do. So yeah, man, I have mad mad respect for that. And then yeah. the level of fitness and that not only the fitness that they have, but also the reaction times. You know, when you when you watch some of the races and the the near 
the near disasters guys get into and they, they save it, you know, like they almost low side and they save it. Or I, I actually, I've seen a couple YouTube videos recently of guys who've like gotten thrown off the bike and actually ended up, you know, on their feet next to the bike on the, on the, on the straightaway, you know, yeah. and they, they control the bike and they get the thing stopped. Yeah. It's like, I, I was yeah. watching one last night. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, I'm sure there's a certain amount of luck to it, but, but a lot of it's got to be reaction time and their fitness level and, and all that kind of stuff. So, oh yeah. yeah. You've got to be in good shape. I mean, even passing sidecars, I mean, it, it wasn't a big deal. We were pretty fit when we were young anyway, but to get out there now, I mean, they bikes are going a lot faster now and they, you, you have less time to move and you, you know, it's a lot, you got to work a whole lot harder. Now, yeah. I think, than what you had to when I was racing. It was, um, if you ain't fit, you're going you're gonna to hurt someone. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. If, if you could even finish the race because, yeah, like I, like I could see, I mean, you know, if you, you're in the middle of the race and you're getting fatigued, I mean, you know, I could easily see someone losing grip, falling off. It's like not, yeah. a, not a good scene. Oh, yeah. th- there's videos out there of passengers falling off sidecars and the sidecar just flipping and rolling down the road, you know. Yeah, which that's that's, that, that's no that that's, that's an interesting thing too, right? Because the passenger is kind of a part that kind of they are they're a part of the motorcycle and they're part of what's keeping the thing on the track. They're a vital part of it. I mean, without the passenger, you can't ride the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you can ride around a right hand corner. You can't go anywhere near a left hand corner. It's just got to right. flip over. Yeah. Yeah. But the the new bikes with all the fairings and stuff now. I mean, the the rider is basically sitting in a hole on the top of the fairing. Not like the old days where there was just a bike, and if the bike flipped, you just got tossed aside. Yeah. Now, now you're gonna go with the outfit if it rolls. Right. And, it's kind of kind of like bobsled kind of thing, like where you know I can see you know bobsled wrecks or whatever, where the guys are basically trapped in the thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, it you know it was great fun at the time, but I just I passed it unfortunately. I would I, I would love to have kept going, but it just, it just got too expensive, you know. Sure. No, honestly. Well, at least you did it. That's awesome. And you know, I know you got, it was fun. you've got I a lot. You got a lot of great stories. Yeah, it, um, I probably got more too if I think about it. But that's, yeah. you know, yeah. When but, um, when when you kind of like look back at your racing days, like, do do you ever go, what the heck was I thinking? Like, why did I do that? Or, no, oh, hell no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay no that's that's awesome that's awesome i, I just was curious because like sometimes like there's, there's things i've done in life where i look back and i go what was i thinking like what was <laughs> what was what, what was my frame of mind back then and uh, you know that doesn't mean it was a bad thing but it's just you know it's just interesting but now that that's that's awesome that you have all like all those fond memories of it yeah when you're young and single i mean your young men are invincible you know you can nothing's yeah. gonna happen yeah yep. just yep. Yep. make the most of the thing you know yeah definitely yeah. <laughs> it, it was it was overall it was great fun it was just I, but the thing i told you i mentioned last night one of the race meetings we went to in, in levin in new zealand which is just north of wellington they have a big kidney shaped track there and i hated the damn thing because you were hanging out of the you were hanging out of the sidecar for three quarters of a lap it's just tiring as hell but we were all after every race meeting we'd all go to the pub and get a skin for you know and yeah we were in there one night, and all the sidecar guys were all sitting in a great big group. And Mike Halewood comes over. He, oh, was, wow. he was he sat down with us and had a bunch of beers. And stuff. He thought we were all that was nuts. <laughs> <laughs> right. But we're still alive. He's dead. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, well, that's interesting, right? How that goes. Yeah, I know. Crashed into a car accident. He died. It wasn't. Yeah, well. Now I guess he, he. So he never. He never raced uh, sidecar rigs. I guess he was. No, he never straight, raced straight up. Straight up motorcycle. But he went back to the Isle of Man ten years after he retired, and won it. Wow. Wow. I mean, what talent, you know? Yeah. What talent? Unbelievable. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, uh, you remember Agostini? You remember Giacomo Agostini, Dutch guy? I know, I know the name. I don't know a lot about him. He, he rode, he used to ride for MV Augusta. And him okay. and Mike Halewood were great competitors. And uh, Agostini was out in Australia. He came out there for a few race meetings. And he was racing at Oran Park in Sydney there. And I was there. And I, Vic Plummer, was friends with the editor of the New Zealand Motorcycle News. And he sent us over a couple of press passes. So I got to I went I got to go anywhere I wanted on the track and I got some great photos of it. I don't have them anymore, unfortunately. But you know, I could I could get right on the edge of the track with my camera and just get real good close ups and stuff like that. But he got he got beaten by the Australian champion, beat him down there in three oh, wow. races. Yeah. It was a oh. great race, man. Those guys they were they were two yards apart for about fifteen laps. <laughs> but he couldn't get past him, you know. Yeah. It was it was, yeah, it was really... fun. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really interesting like to look back at that stuff and I haven't really taken advantage of it, but one of the things that's cool is I have uh you know like a, a subscription to to MotoGP, right, that I can access the races online or whatever, but that includes like I don't know how far back it goes, but it, it covers many many years of MotoGP racing. So oh, really? there's this, yeah, there's actually the opportunity to kind of go back and look at some of the historic races. It it may only go back 90s and stuff, I'm not sure, but um Yeah. Well, when I, when I was racing in New Zealand, the bikes, the main solos that were racing were Manx Norton's, the Bachelors G50, and the um, there was the 350 Manx and the 500 Manx. There was the G50 Matchless, which was a 500, and there was the AJS 7R, which was a 350 Matchless, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, they have all single cylinder bikes with big old megaphones on them. You know, they were. Oh, awesome sound! That listening to those things all cranking in the corners it was yeah. amazing. But that yeah. then the um, then the um, two strokes started to come out. The little factory Yamaha two strokes and stuff like that, and they just left all the the two fifty two strokes were leaving the fire. The Manx Nortons were dead. Oh wow! All, all that stuff just went into hibernation pretty damn quick, you know. And, it was uh, then the seven. Then eventually, there's a seven fifty. Was it a Yamaha three cylinder Yamaha that came out? I forget what the model number was, but that that was the hottest, fastest race bike on the planet. And then they started taking the motors out of those and putting those into sidecars. Okay. Yeah, so it was. It was amazing, you know. Amazing days, amazing days. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So much, so much fun. Yeah, that's cool. <clears throat> all right well tony we're getting a uh, little, little after an hour so um yeah maybe we'll kind of wrap it up this is this has been really great um and and you know if you're if you're up for it maybe we'll, we'll do it again sometime if because i i know it sounds like you got a lot more stories to tell if uh we just kind of dig a little yeah no absolutely i mean yeah. this, is, this is fun i've never done one of these before so yeah it's good to sort of reminisce on this sort of stuff and Sure, absolutely, and and it's cool too, because like you know, like I said, I you know, started riding three years ago, and I used to follow auto racing, which I still like, but 
you know, I can't do too much, right? There's, you know, the, 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 whatever. There's so much to do in a week. And so my, my attention shifted to motorcycle racing. But I, I just know, like, contemporary racing, really. Uh, yeah. So it, it's cool. Like, I've heard bits and pieces, you know, about what racing was like in the 60s and 70s or whatever. But, uh, you know, it, it's cool to talk to someone like yourself who was actually there doing it. And especially outside the U.S. because, the, you know, whatever. There's just so many whatever <clears throat> so many places you know where, where racing you know has is, is popular has been popular and and just to learn how it's diff- been different you know in different parts of the the world so. well so many bikes down in those days apart from the factory the manxes and the matchless and stuff like that but so many people built their own bikes you know, like the g50 i told you about they got bought out to 600 you know yep yep stuff yep. like that and um so many people were doing that sort of stuff. It was it was really cool what they were coming up with, and boy, they got some serious speed out of some of these things, you know. Yeah, yeah. really serious speed. Awesome, awesome. All right, Tony. Well, thank you once again. Um, any uh, any parting words or wisdom you have for the listeners? Well, no, just ride safe, guys. Yeah, it's a lot of a lot of fun to be had, but ride safe. Yep, awesome, awesome, awesome. Put, put the helmet on. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what the laws are up in your state. Down here in Florida, they don't have to wear helmets, and it's just, oh my yeah. god. No, New, New York, it's required. Pennsylvania, right, which is just two states over, it's not required. So, like, I, you know, I, I know people that like they'll ride New York and New Jersey with a helmet, and then as soon as they get into Pennsylvania, the helmet comes off. Which, you know, I, I've said personal choice, and if that, you know, people live got to live their lives the way they want, but I, I just advocate, you know, just keeping keeping yourself safe, wear good gear. Yeah, I've, I've seen too many faces scrape down the road, you know. Yeah, I, I hear you. I you hear know, you. it's just, there's no need for it, you know. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so if, if you want to hang on a couple minutes, I'll just uh, shut it down and we could we could chat briefly. Thank you, Chris. I'd like to give a huge thank you to Tony Sheriff for joining me on the show and doing the interview. As always, thank you to everyone who's written in. I answer everyone's emails and messages personally as soon as I can, usually the same day. I always enjoy reading listener messages and feedback on the show, but I won't do so unless you give me your permission to do so. If you haven't already, please drop me an email or fill out the contact form on my website or message me in Facebook or on Instagram and let me know that you're out there and anything that you want to let me know about the show. You can email me anytime at soyouwantaride at yahoo.com or just use the link in the podcast notes to my website, soyouwantaridemotorcycle.com, where you'll find all my contact details. I do still have stickers available. It was really cool being at Moto America. You know, it's uh, Chris Bays has my sticker on his motorcycle and it was cool to see it on uh, Cooper McDonald's motorcycle and also the uh, the t-shirts that he had made up so that's really cool and i know uh, a bunch of people have written in for stickers recently so i've been getting you know pictures of of the sticker on people's luggage and motorcycles and whatever i've been posting them up on social media so that's really cool so if you want to help me promote the podcast you know just uh Email me your mailing address. I'll get some stickers out to you. If you'd like to help support the podcast, you can make a donation using PayPal by going to paypal.me slash Christopher Geis or click the donate link at the upper right corner on my website. If you do care to donate, anything you donate is very, very welcome. As I've mentioned in past episodes, you know, there's a fair amount of uh, expense involved in producing, you know, putting the podcast together and the tools, the software, microphones and whatever. And uh, I would like to start investing in some better equipment so I can come out, you know, with better quality content and better turnaround time. So, like I said, you know, anything you'd like to donate and, you know, you could do it any way you'd like, you know, on a per episode basis or 
or on a monthly basis or, you know, whatever fits in with your budget. Uh, like I said, anything you want to do would be greatly appreciated. Uh, just help to defray the costs and, uh, yeah, help me keep this thing rolling just so I can uh, continue to bring you guys and gals the best episodes that I can. Also, please like and leave me comments and a rating on your favorite podcast service, in particular iTunes, which will help other people find my podcast. Definitely please like and follow me on Facebook and Instagram. I'm constantly putting content there, and I'm continuing to build up an online community, which is really, really cool. You just search for So You Want to Ride, or you can find the links on my website. And please keep spreading the word and help me build my online and listener communities. As always, I thank you for listening, and just remember... Whatever you do, it's always time to ride. (laughs) 